Happy Wednesday, folks. My name is Spencer George, and you're listening to The Good Folk Podcast. It's a rare and beautiful experience to come across someone you immediately connect with, only to realize you have been peripherally weaving circles around one another for years. It's how I felt immediately upon entering this conversation with Anel Stahl, a North Carolina-based songwriter and entertainer. Anel's sound is distinct with catchy, melt-in-your-mouth melodies and timeless lyrical depth. A pioneer in the world of virtual performance and a visionary in their artistry, Anel marries music, comedy, and storytelling in a distinct and captivating show that has caught the attention of an international audience online. Celebrated for their sultry vocals and colorful creativity by Earmilk, Diva Mag, and ABC News, Anel's best is yet to come. Anel's first studio project, titled Mars, in 2017, featured moody, driving pop production and a lyrical discussion of love, war, and imagination. After the pandemic of 2020 canceled Anel's live show schedule, the artist released an acoustic collection of music called Heart on My Sleeve, where stripped production was matched with vulnerable themes of loss and self-discovery. Anel began performing on the popular live streaming platform Twitch TV. There, an international audience quickly grew in Anel's playful ecosystem of music and improvisational comedy. After Mr. Christmas, a bluesy big band holiday single in 2020, Anel released a slew of songs in 2021 and 2022. Tracks like Lemon Days, Turquoise, and Tonight anticipate Anel's debut full-length album, which is set to release in 2024. Anel publicly came out to the world as queer and non-binary in 2022, with musical and visual art that celebrated sapphic and southern camp imagery. The songwriter then took a musical detour with Violet, an EP of queer nostalgic pop in 2023. Following its leading single, My Girl, Anel began recording and playing with a Raleigh, North Carolina-based band. Pressure, tracked and co-produced by Anel's guitarist and musical partner Ben Youngblood, features the group's groovy indie pop sound. Anel has toured the country with shows in Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, San Diego, Charlotte, Miami, and more. They continue to stream a show of music and comedy full-time on Twitch TV, have raised over $15,000 for charity, and advocate for the destigmatization and prioritization of mental health. At its core, Good Folk is a reminder that as Southern and rural artists, we are not alone. We have always been here doing this work, and there are so many of us spread out across the country. We seek to do this work with eyes open in pursuit of the belief that when we do, we will see those of us all around in collaboration, community, and creativity. This conversation served as a reminder to me that community is everywhere if you are willing to look for it. I hope you enjoy. caught up on all the videos that you sent so I'm I'm super excited to dig into this yeah well first of all thank you for being willing to do that and like look into my discography a little bit um and also I'm just very happy to be here um because when Vic I know them as Tori Tori do you go by Vic did we not get to this discussion um as long as it's not Vicky I answer to anything Vic is solely like my nickname <laughs> that has just stopped. oh it's your nickname for them okay <laughs> i don't really know when it's like my mom wait. had a best friend in her 20s who is named victoria and went but like my mom called them vic and so i was like yeah this is my best friend victoria i'm just gonna call them vic and it just kind of stuck okay well that's iconic I <laughs> but love i realized it. that i've given you this name in good folk things that you might not actually want <laughs> no it's like everyone from my childhood knows me as tori and then everyone in my adult life knows me as like vic so okay. it's like people funny when like they kind of cross over and everyone's like, yeah. who are you speaking about? That's me? amazing. Yeah, it was so funny. I was listening to one of the podcasts and um, you referred to them as Vic. And I was like, who's Vic? And then they started speaking. I was like, wait, like, that's, <laughs> it's all making sense now. I like that's both, really cute. So it though. doesn't matter. As long as it's okay. not Vicky. I'm not a big fan of Vicky, but literally anything I'll else. use both then. There we go. Oh my God. I like as a person of many, many multitudes and identities and we love them for it. <laughs> Yeah. Yay. Period. The best people are. <laughs> how do y'all know each other? How do how did we actually even meet in the first place? I could not begin to tell you. I just, I've known her now since we were what? Since we were like babies, basically. Yeah. Um. I mean, oh, uh, middle school. Middle school. 
yeah, yeah. no we actually um we're childhood friends our parents were friends and um in some ways we grew up alongside each other because mm-hmm. we would go for like a long time without seeing one another and then we'd see each other again and like kind of get to like check in and then in our young adult life we've not been connected um but recently i moved back to the sandhills for tbd how long and um i was like who do i know in the sandhills because i was just like really wanting to f- get connected to community and um and i had known um through the grapevine that tori had come out um as non-binary and i had come out as non-binary and i was like okay well you know I know what needs to happen. We need to share an incredible meal and catch up on our lives. And so we did recently. And um, and that's when like the podcast came up. And I think it's incredible work. And I'm not surprised that someone so wonderful is involved with something so wonderful. So <laughs> you actually really answered what was going to be my first question, which is kind of what is your relationship to the Sandhills and to North Carolina? And I don't know if you want to elaborate on that more now, but um, for some context, which listeners of this podcast will know, Vic and I met teaching um, in Moore County and kind of in the rural parts of the Sandhills and realized very quickly that as two artists, as two queer people who had spent some time outside of rural places, but really call rural places home at the end of the day, there are so many stereotypes and misconceptions about what it is to be here and be an artist and be queer. And I think we joke all the time that I went to women's college in New York City and I have more queer friends in North Carolina than I ever did there, which is something that a lot of people can't wrap their head around. Um, And I found more of a home as an artist and more inspiration in this region. I'm in Chapel Hill now for grad school, but the Sandhills holds a special place in my heart. And I think it's, it's a really amazing place to be. And the arts community there is hard to put into words, but it is exploding. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your relationship to the Sand Hills, maybe as a place to begin. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up a military kid, so I moved around everywhere. And um, my dad was stationed at Fort Bragg, which is the military base that is in the Sand Hills. And so I went to um, part of elementary school, middle school, and high school there. And uh, I also grew up in a very conservative part of the Sandhills. My family was heavily involved in the Christian church and um, particularly like the Presbyterian denomination. And there are two. There are some that um, are very accepting of like women and queer leaders. And there are others that um, are extremely strict and like, you know, to be queer is a sin Um, to be a woman is to not be allowed in a leadership position in church. Um, And I was a part of that one. Um, It had a huge impact on me, uh, you know, as one might suspect, um, being in high school and middle school in such a conservative church. Uh, Like, I remember one time I went to my pastor and I was like, I really think that my calling is to be a musician. And he was like, well, technically, the only real calling that God can give is to be a pastor. And you're a woman, so you can't have a calling. But allow that to set you free because you can do whatever you'd like to do with your life. And I remember sitting there being like, oh, my God, like <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to move forward. And um. And then I moved out of the Sandhills when I was 18. I graduated high school early because I was signed by an artist management company in Nashville. And before I left the Sandhills, I was performing in probably like three, at least two or three different bars every weekend. Um, So I would play in, you know, Pinehurst, Southern Pines, um, Fayetteville, like all of the surrounding areas and had relationships with these venues. Um, I played in a little three piece band and just had like made a sort of like local name for myself. And then I moved out to the big city. um, And there I found more homophobia. (laughs) 
and Christian doctrine because um, Nashville is, uh, you know, it's for those who don't know, like it's often called Music City USA. It's the Christian music capital of the world as well as the country music capital of the world. And I was signed by a company that was looking to engage with like a young up and coming pop artist. And that was very much what I felt um, my direction was leaning toward. And um, I was heavily involved with the Christian contemporary scene because I had connections in that area of music because of my upbringing. And at this point, I was starting to deconstruct religion and um, began to feel separate from the doctrine that I had been um, raised with. But I was still very much like associated with that group of people. And it didn't take long for me to like essentially um, be like exiled from that community in one way or another, whether it just was like, you know, my church attendance started going down or, um, you know, like something as simple as like I had a boyfriend at 18 and I wanted to be in my room alone with him and shut the door. And the Christian family that I was living with was like, that is not allowed you have to leave. We're kicking you out. And um, so anyway, I know that's a long-winded way of saying um, I was out in Nashville for several years. I worked there um, as a songwriter. And um, after several years of trying to get a publishing deal and work behind the scenes, I realized that what I missed was live performance. And I had this just moment where I was like, I'm I'm going to forget everything that I built here. I'm going to leave my job. I was in um, a biology program at Nashville State. I decided to leave that, um, my apartment, my community. And I was like, I'm going to move back to North Carolina. I miss it there. I felt homesick. And North Carolina was the closest place to home that I had felt as a military kid because I had spent my high school and middle school years there. And um, so I moved to Charlotte and I booked a tour that was going to go all the way up and down the East Coast. So like from Florida into New York. And um, it was set for 2020. It took me about six months to book all of the dates. And then in one fell swoop, every single one was canceled. Um, and that was a crazy time to be an entertainer that relied on crowds gathering and it ended up being a really beautiful thing because I started doing virtual performance in an effort to find connection with people and um, I started streaming on a platform called Twitch TV and Twitch is lar largely known as a gaming platform. A lot of people stream like uh, you know games, there's some sports, um, there's a there's some variety content, but there wasn't a ton of music. And um, there were a lot of musicians that were looking for a platform. And I kind of joined this beautiful wave of entrepreneurial um, independent musicians that found connection and community online through Twitch for their music. And that can bring us up to date. I know that my connection to the Sandhills turned into part of my life story, but <laughs> it sets the scene, I think, and is just like important context. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about Twitch and the idea of kind of reclaiming this or making a space for music, because I know plenty of people who stream on Twitch, but it's definitely on the gaming side. And you're kind of one of the first musicians I've heard of who is using this in a very, not that gaming's not creative, but using it as a new platform for creative work, but also to build connection and community. And I think it's for, for us why we started this podcast is to find the community that we, that we felt like we were lacking in real life. Um, and what has since happened is we've uncovered an entire web and network of people who've been here all along in so many ways. And now we're forming connections that start online and then become this real life thing and people we have on the podcast who become some of our closest friends, which is a really, really cool experience. And I imagine it works maybe similarly um, on Twitch or another kind of online platform like that. And so I'd love to hear more about 
your journey as a musician on there and seeing this platform grow. And I know for you, it's also been very important in kind of your identity formation and coming out a little bit more publicly in the world. So I'd love to hear you reflect on that experience a bit. What Twitch did was give me the gift of the internet. That was something that I think a lot of us think that we have, but I had not had it in this particular way. Um, I was connected with people that I had known from my real life on like Facebook and Instagram. Um, But then Twitch, my audience comes from all over. So it's an international collection of people from around the world that gather together because of a common interest. And um, the common interest was connection, music, and um, ultimately what has become like my personality in that, you know, like I have a certain sense of humor. um, I stand for certain things. And what happens is you attract like-minded people. You attract people that think your jokes are funny. You attract people who value the things that you talk about and that um, you create space for in your community. And I was also exposed to a larger variety of people. Growing up in the South, something that I notice is that um, oftentimes Uh, people just haven't ever heard of a non-binary person before. They've never, they don't have a lot of queer representation because queerness um, has, you know, historically been marginalized in this area, especially, but also, you know, just for safety reasons, people are a bit quieter here about their queerness. And uh, they're not on the internet. (laughs) The internet is very queer. Um, The social circles that I started to find myself in, they're just a lot of creators that are taking up space, um, being vocal about their uh, identity, um, whether that be with their sexual orientation or their gender. And um, so many things were normalized for me as I started to get exposed to this beautiful, wide spectrum of humanity that can be found on the internet. And um, over the course of several years, being live for three to four hours, three to four times a week um, with an audience of like several hundred people at a time, you really get to know them and you also really get to know yourself. And it's unsustainable, I've found, to put on any type of face Um, to the internet. I feel like I have to be authentic all the time. Otherwise, I get burnt out. And um, there's a certain like showman attitude that you might tap into. But for the most part, I'm, I'm just me. And I started to realize, um, I think I've been streaming for about two years. And I I realized I had a crush on one of my friends and she was a girl. And I was like, no, (laughs) it can't be me. Gayness is something you hear about. Gayness is something you go to hell for. Um, That could never happen to me. And it just became more and more obvious um, once I was in an environment where suppression wasn't needed for safety reasons and it had been normalized for me, it was like a champagne bottle in my body and in my heart and mind. And it became so obvious all of a sudden, like, wow, like I like girls. I've always liked girls. Actually, looking back, I've had crushes on multiple of my friends and I didn't know what that was or um, why, but now I do. And, and it became more and more relevant to me. And I really wanted to share it with the world. And I came out to my nuclear family um, um, more privately, but I really wanted to make a statement um, coming from the background that I did um, and coming from a conservative family and a conservative area. I felt um, excited about the possibility of sending a shockwave through that community and um By that time, I had become very convicted that the doctrine that I had been raised to believe was very wrong. Um, 
that my attraction to women was something that was so incredibly natural um, and common that I really wanted to share a message of empowerment. And it was the right choice for me to be very public and loud um, as an artist. And so I dropped a music video um, where I'm in love with a girl. And uh, it's not really like, it's not an explicit video. There's actually no, I don't ever kiss um, anyone in the video and nothing is seen, no clothes come off, but it felt scandalous because it was like, it's a girl. And, um, and there was just this very like noticeable reaction um, in my community in in person like it racked up the views i um got an interview with diva magazine which is one of the largest queer publications in europe and one of the things that they asked me was um you're from the south that must be so hard to be a queer person in the south um why do you stay there and i just like had this moment in the interview where i was like I realized how passionate I felt about the area that I had come from, um, how many people were likely in the situation that I was in, and um, how much good can come from dropping a queer video, um, someone like me coming out and dropping a video uh, that portrayed a queer relationship. And if I came from somewhere else, if I dropped a video like that, it may not have the impact that it ended up having on my community. And I was given this very special honor and opportunity to have an impact somewhere. Um, and so I just started realizing that, you know, if everybody leaves, who is going to stay and create space for young queer folk and old queer folk that, you know, all queer people that haven't had the space to be loud um, if they want to be. And um, yeah, it was a really beautiful thing. And and then to just wrap up this thought, I, I was very lucky to have um, an incredible friend who identifies as non-binary. Uh, I had known them for several years and um, I started having all kinds of feelings um, that caused me to uh, seek out like um, talk therapy with someone who specialized in gender dysphoria. I was a very, very feminine, hyper feminine content creator. Um, and I was, you know, I very much looked like a girl. Um, and I had a very like stereotypically um, feminine body as well. And I would get compliments and attention for how attractive I was as a woman, but it just felt awful for some reason. And um, and then after seeking out some therapy and confiding in my non-binary friend, I started to realize how masculine I really felt inside. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. And I actually, this is, you know, very new and relevant for me because I really only came out as non-binary earlier this year. Um, publicly online. And I changed my pronouns and um, went through like kind of a transition online um, where I lost a lot of folk and um, gained a lot of new people. And my community went, you know, through this transition. And I have so many people that have um, been in my stream for three or four years and have seen me change my presentation and um, and become more and more myself and more alive. I've seen, you know, people become changed by witnessing that in me and watching minds open. And, um, that's been an incredible thing. And now I identify as non-binary and I'm very fluid. And so I, you know, I feel very feminine sometimes. I feel very masculine sometimes. And, I am still in a process of learning about myself and um, the diversity to be found in gender and the queer community and uh, feel really, really lucky 
to be a part of the absolutely incredible community um, that have found each other and me on the internet. It's a really incredible reminder, I think, that identity is never this fixed thing. And it's also really refreshing to hear you talk about online spaces in this positive way, because I think in my head, I associate the internet with something that feels really threatening and terrifying. And then I also have to recognize that in my own life, the internet has served a really important role in the identities that I have, you know, called mine over years and continue to shift and change and grow in all of those ways. And I was reflecting on that as you were speaking, because I remember being 15 or 16 and realizing, oh, I have these feelings and maybe these are not normal, you know, feelings towards friends, not knowing what a crush is and not having the language for that until years later. And you come across like, I'm thinking of Haley Kiyoko's Girls Like Girls music video. And the similarities I feel are kind of between that and um, the Tonight video that you're referencing. And thinking about what is so important and the role that we can play as public people or people who are online in these spaces, whether or whether it's online or coming back and being in person physically in a community, is that you open up space for people to see themselves through possibilities. Um, I do a lot of work. I'm a folklorist and I describe a lot of my work as folklore futurisms and using the things that we make and say and do as ways to reimagine our possible futures. And I think that that starts by giving people an opening and an opportunity to reimagine themselves differently. And I, I have this feeling that I feel very deeply that I think it's there's so many people who identify both as artists and as queer, because when you start to break down these ideas of what life is supposed to look like, you open yourself up to all these new imaginatory possibilities. And I think both artistry and queerness do that. And there's a lot of overlap between them. I also, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm starting to think the internet does that, right? Like as damaging as Tumblr was in 2014, there are so many philosophies that I was opened up to and books that I read and films that I watched and things that really shaped my worldview as I was becoming a young adult that I had access to because I had the internet. It is frightening having been a middle school teacher to see the flip side of that and things like TikTok can be both so good and so bad at the same time. And I'm just thinking really heavily right now about the responsibility of the internet to do kind of what you're talking about, which is creating community and creating space and not to become a replacement for the communities that we might lack in real life, but to become instead a pathway and an opportunity to opening and growing those. It's what I like to think we do with this podcast, just say, you know, we both came back to rural North Carolina and said, we cannot be the only artist here. And I know for a fact we are not. So how do we find the other people? And I'm, I'm thinking of this as like, this is a digital media project with the idea that we're able to identify people that we feel a connection to and bring them together. And good artistry includes that organizing piece. And I think you're doing very, very similar work in this other realm of the internet. And it makes me feel positive about the future, I think, um, and, and where it will go. But how do you think of that when you think about the role that the internet plays in your work and maybe these flip sides of it can be both really, really good and really, really damaging. And especially as we hold content creators to these ideas of, you know, we form attachments to people as they present themselves to us. And then we refuse to allow people to change and grow. And I know I follow a lot of creators who have changed identities and come out as queer, maybe are not like dating females anymore. And, you know, identity changes all the time and we don't allow people that space online. So how do you think about that and kind of where we go from here with it? Yeah, well, it's so important to talk about because there is integrity required to be a content creator, if you will, which is so frustrating. That term is a whole can of worms to me because um, it is ultimately like we are existing and um, creating dialogue and engagement on these platforms that are built to be addictive these platforms that make spreading misinformation very easy. There's a lot of um, just kind of like, I, I feel like there's a lot of rage bait these days because there's so much polarization and baiting people into anger and creates engagement and 
creating pictures that look unrealistic and shocking create engagement and doing things that are um that inspire awe or um or shock or anger or you know just these big emotions are ultimately what lead to relevancy as a creator and there is so much responsibility when people are engaged with you and looking to you and admiring you um to create content that's uplifting I think not in a toxic positivity type of way but in more of um I think it's important to create content that's real it's important to create content that's honest and um and and leave space for growth uh I definitely have experienced um firsthand what it's like to present a certain way and like feed a certain image to people. Um, also, I think online, you know, people fill in the blanks. If they don't know something about me, they'll likely assume it based on context clues, what I look like, the things that I say, um, their own lived experience. And then when I came out as gay, and then when I came out as non binary, and when I cut my hair, and when I changed my presentation, I feel like there was a lot of like disappointment and loss um, in my community in the people that saw me in a different way. I represented something different for them, whether that was innocence or femininity or whatever. Um, and it was disappointing. And I think others were able to grow with me and something that I've learned since then is just like, you know, using words and um, reinforcing the idea that people are ever-changing, organic, uh, very multi-dimensional beings. And um, just because I'm one way right now doesn't mean I might be um, that way forever. And that exists um, in my own artistry, you know, in my music, like my genre has changed as I've changed and grown. The topics I write about change. And as a person, I grow and change, um, whether that's outward or inward or both. And I will continue to. And yeah, I think just like creating space for that and and using dialogue that allots for that, you know, and reminding people that um that gender isn't real <laughs> and that it's okay to be fluid, it's okay to change your mind, it's okay to um experiment. I feel like there's not a lot of room for that on the internet these days. You know, like once you say something, you're kind of locked into it or you didn't mean it or you did it for attention or you did it for whatever. And I, I do think it's important for young people to feel like they can experiment and try new things. And it's ex important for creators to do that too. Um, yeah, it's a little bit rambling, but I think that mostly covers that topic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I don't know if y'all feel this, but it feels to me like I remember coming out and it felt terrifying and huge and this like major life shift, like, I think I first publicly wrote it down in a creative writing class I was taking in college. And I remember like having a panic attack in the bathroom that I was like, I've written a story about having a crush on my best friend. And of course I'm at women's college. Everyone reads it. And it's like, yeah, relatable content, right? There's this kind of cultural idea now because we have, I don't want to say a lot because it's not nearly enough, but a media now about being queer, right? And this thing that it feels so nonchalant that it's like, yeah, everybody in Gen Z is LGBT these days. And I think that almost diminishes like that it's a difficult experience, especially when you're really online and, and really public in who you are to share that with the world, right? It's still vulnerable. Um, it doesn't have to be this big deal. And, you know, for a lot of people, it isn't. But at the same time, revealing parts of yourself to the world always feels hard. And especially to your point in a place like rural North Carolina, where 
it might not be a huge deal in somewhere like New York City these days, but it is still a big deal here. And I think it it's why it makes it so important um, to to come back and to be the people that we are in the spaces that, you know, we didn't maybe have these people growing up. But I think the internet sometimes pushes an idea that identity is something fixed, but also not something super important and something that is really vulnerable. And it feels like a really nice reminder to me here that, you know, the people that we follow online are still people. And we create this detachment through technology that makes people feel like someone far off. And I don't know if anyone's ever had the experience of like someone you follow online, whether it's someone like maybe just on a college campus that you follow, but you've never met or like an actual kind of celebrity or whatever, and you see them in person and it's like, oh yeah, they're real. You know, like our group chat talks about this person and now here they are in front of me. Um, I think it's easy to forget that people on the internet are real people sometimes. And that with that comes all of these complications in growth and identity and who we are. And we have to allow people to change and grow because it's ridiculous to expect that we're all static and stagnant in our identity. And even something like changing your hair. I'm a natural blonde. I remember I dyed my hair red last year and it felt like an entire new identity shift. Or um, Vic, we've talked about you shaving your head and it's like, now I'm a new person and all these people get mad about it. But I, yeah, I don't really have a good point with this. I'm just thinking about it in terms of the internet and the way in which you're kind of reclaiming that space, but also making it very known that, you know, this is who you are. And especially as an artist, like allowing your work to grow and shift with that. Of, I think, you know, you said you're losing some audiences, but I'm sure there are many, many people that you're also gaining within that who really respect you being so open and shifting in who you are, because I think so many of us, feel that way. And it's a lifelong process to figure ourselves out. So I really appreciate you being so honest and open about that. And especially with the reclamation of Southern identity, which I of course want to talk about in some of your art and work and the way in which, you know, you've, you've taken these different identities and also really made a space for them um, in the way you've experienced them and and kind of putting this fun queer spin on a lot of it. And it's so fun for me to see because I'm like, wow, this is work I can really relate to. And I'm sure there are many, many people who feel that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say too, that even though it's not, it's not the right choice for everyone to be so public about their identity um, or their um, orientation, I've gotten a lot of thank yous and kind messages and received, um, just like I've had a lot of really authentic connections with people who have been appreciative of the representation. And I think of before I came out, the creators that were vocal about their orientation or especially like the non-binary creators that I follow that have been open about their experience with gender. I was so grateful, so endlessly grateful for their vulnerability and their willingness to create content around that. And it just means so much to me um, as a non-binary person to see other people taking up space. And so, um, yeah, that's felt really good. And to your comment about um, just like the culture where I'm from, one of the things also that has been a lot of fun for me is to reclaim some of the things that I was raised with. So like, you know, something I say all the time is y'all means all. And um, creating Southern queer representation um, in particular, because, you know, like you think about like a gay cowboy and you think about Brokeback Mountain, maybe. But other than that, you know, there's not much that comes to mind. And um, with how masculine I feel, something that I have really identified with um, is like Western culture and like masculine, like Western culture. And it looks funny um, maybe or or misplaced on someone who's like androgynous and queer and is like kind of doing it in this like campy, playful way. But um, when I was working on marketing one of my songs, it's called Hindsight Bias. For those listening, if you want to see it with your own eyes, um, I wanted to work together with my other non-binary friend um, and essentially like create this Western 
character, this like Southern queer cowboy character (laughs) and embody that and kind of like take back that culture and um, and provide representation for queer folks within that context specifically, Um, because I think that even when we see representation in the media, um, I've listened to a couple other uh, podcast episodes on good folk. Um, I'm a true fan, you guys, for those of you listening. Uh, We're all, you know, we're all here as fans, myself included. And one of the things I love that's talked about a lot um, is just like the importance of place and Southern culture and this, um, this misconception that to be queer is to move to the city or to, um, or to become like city folk. And, and it's, it's more of like a West coast, like Northern thing to be queer, but there are tons of queer people in the South. And I like the idea of providing specific like Southern queer representation, because you just don't see it. You don't see it as much. I agree just a thousand percent with everything you've said. And I am so obsessed with the hindsight bias music video. It's like right up my alley because as Vic knows and many of my other really close friends, I'm like completely obsessed with cowboy culture. I grew up in um with a, I grew up with an Appalachian North Carolina family and grew up going to this like Wild West theme park, which is there's so many problems there. We could talk all about it, but there's something really interesting to me about like this and especially in Nashville, but like the southern reclamation of Western culture. And now the way in which it's being kind of taken again by queer people in the South, I'm like so, so into and obsessed with. And I could not tell you why, but I've been at work for the last few years on a short story that's taking me forever. But it's like literally about a cowboy training camp and like everyone there is queer. And I was like, I have no rationale for this, but I'm I'm rolling with it. Um, And I'm thinking of the episode of Euphoria that came out, gosh, like two years ago, but they had a whole montage of Rue and Jules, and there was a whole scene where they kind of redid the Brokeback Mountain iconography. And I was like, this, this is what we're talking about. But how much more important that even feels to do it in the South? Because I think one thing I love too is like the queer reclamation of camouflage right now that's happening. And I think it feels really important to me as a Southerner and as a queer person, because we see these stereotypical Southern identities yes. very much one way, right? We see them as like redneck culture is reserved for a certain group of people. And there's something happening now that people who have historically been left out of that are able to say, actually, this is also my home and therefore I have a right to its culture. Now we could talk for a very long time about the pros and cons of Southern culture. That's a much larger and longer conversation. But I do think there is something that when you're growing up in these places and you see yourself only pos- there's only one representation of who you could be and it often involves leaving that to be able to say actually this is my home this is where i feel comfortable and i'm going to take the aesthetic of this place and make it my own and have access to it because you telling me i shouldn't have access to it doesn't actually make any sense like i'm from here who's to say i don't have a right to these things so even like something as simple as you know, wearing camo and cowboy boots feels really radical in a way right now to me that those of you who are from the South might know and relate to this, but I have really enjoyed seeing it. I think it's really funny now when you see people in California and New York who want to use words like y'all and folk, which I'll just make an aside, are the two most gender exclusive terms that we have and both very stereotypically Southern. But now it's like every cool lesbian I know in LA is wearing camo. And I'm like, when did that happen? But also you know, the South and in a lot of ways is the blueprint. And one thing I always reference to people like working in Southern studies is that the South is seen as not having an activist history. And that is not because it doesn't. It is because the activist histories in the South are forcefully oppressed in a way that they want you to believe they're not happening. But it actually is happening more here than anywhere else. And we hear more about the oppression of those movements than about the movements themselves. But it doesn't mean the movements don't exist. And if there weren't any activist movements in the South, we wouldn't be having that kind of oppression, right? So it's not to discount it. Obviously, the oppre- it's there's so much of it. But when you actually look at the history, there is so much history of queerness and radical activism and labor rights and all of these things that are happening here in the South is really, in so many ways, the breeding ground for that. So it feels really important to me 
to be a Southern, to get to build on that legacy and be a part of that. And it feels really important to also be able to claim some space within that um, because it's hard to be an activist here right now. It's hard to be a queer person and it's hard to be an artist. It feels like in so many ways, this place doesn't want you and that the easier choice would be to leave. Um, and for those of us who have left, I think you relate to the feeling that when you go, there's something missing. And while it may be hard to be here doing this work right now, it also feels deeply fulfilling because it feels like I get to be home and I get to be in the places that feel like home. So that is my long ramble on all of that, which is mostly just to say I love the cowboy reclamation and I love what you're doing with it. <laughs> yeah. One last thought there is um, I think like a lot of things that are reclaimed um, by marginalized communities, it's uh, I think it kind of takes the power away from something that used to be oppressive and I think especially with my time spent in Nashville and um, my time spent in the Sand Hills, I very much associated country culture with oppression and um, with homophobia. And so I think it's really special. It's very cool. I agree to see the queer community leaning into Western culture and adopting words like folk and y'all, which... I make this point regularly on my stream that they are so gender inclusive, um, which is so ironic, but also so beautiful and wonderful. And I love to hear about people like y'all that are um, highlighting the goodness in the South, because I do think that there are times when it feels hard to be here. Um, I'd love to, you know, briefly comment on the fact that um, the Sandhills had their first uh, Pride event this past year. And um, Lauren Mathers, who was on this podcast, uh, you know, I think last week, the week before, I'm not sure when this one will come two, out. Two, three weeks ago, we will we'll link to it here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I got to work with her and um, come back and perform at that Pride event, which was like, you know, the first ever in the community. And I've done, you know, since I came out last year, like I've been involved in other Pride organizations and those have been beautiful and impactful and wonderful, but none felt more beautiful, more impactful, more significant than coming to this rural town um, to do a first ever Pride event. Who gets to say that they get to do that? And there are moments when it feels um, frightening because of uh, the things that happened in the Sandhills um, back in December of last year um, with the drag show uh, attacks. And um, there is an element of fear that you walk through as a queer person being in this area and like, you know, I did a show at that same theater where it all took place a couple of months later. Um, and I don't know of another non-binary person that that theater works with. And there was a, a significant amount of apprehension um, over that. But I also do feel like it's a great honor. Um, I see a world where work like this is not needed anymore. Um, I've heard people say that before too. And I think that maybe we are a far ways off from that, but I do think that we'll get there. I have faith in humanity and I watch, um, minds change and hearts change all the time. Um, one thing that I like to say to people doing this kind of work is that, um, you may encounter someone who isn't used to the idea that gender is a social construct or that, um, you know, like sexuality is a spectrum and they may have an adverse reaction and you may leave feeling empty handed like I did this work, but I didn't change this mind. I didn't open this heart up to this idea. But the reality is, at least in my case, as someone who grew up conservative, I needed to be exposed to queerness I don't know, let's say 17 times before my mind was changed. And 
even if you walk away and that that heart isn't open, that mind isn't open by the time you leave that audience or that that individual person, um, that is one less time that they may need to come into contact with queerness to accept it and love it and um, maybe even accept themselves. And so you're still, there's progress being made everywhere. And I feel really lucky to be a part of that. You know, every stride I take is so much larger. It's so much longer in the South, in here, than it would be in another place. I love that. And I am really glad you mentioned earlier as well, the interview where you spoke about that and about how much more of an impact your work can have here. It was one of the first things I read about you. And I just immediately was like, yes, because it is, it is so similar to how I feel. And I think the South is changing. It feels like it is changing slowly. And I'll reference something that Lauren said when we interviewed her um, for this podcast, Lauren, who is the executive director of Sandhills Pride. And she was saying, you know, this change is not going to happen in my lifetime. Like it would be amazing if it did, but true change and true progress takes time. And that part of the work we have to do now is to learn how to be okay with that and to realize that we might be putting all of this effort into things and we may never see it change and come to pass. At the same time, I do think that it is changing even very slowly. I can see now, you know, I grew up half in North Carolina and half in South Carolina and the North Carolina that I've moved back to as an adult is very, very different from the North Carolina that I grew up in. And that feels good. That feels like progress and like we're moving forward at the same time. I feel like I am waking up every day to another form of rights being rolled back, um, both across LGBT issues, across racial issues, across healthcare. Like it feels like we're taking one step forward and two steps back sometimes. And so I'm thinking as well, like one of the great challenges in this work is to recognize that the end goal, and I, I work in the nonprofit world, I feel this way about every nonprofit, is the end goal is we shouldn't have to exist, right? My vision for the South is that we have so many artists and queer people everywhere that we don't even need to have an interview podcast where we try to find out where they are, right? You're just surrounded by them all the time. I don't know if that vision will happen in the life that I get to live, but I like to think that the work that all of us are doing, both through this project and independently in our own right as artists, is laying some of the groundwork for that. And I guess what I would love to have you touch on is thinking about, you know, the sandhills that you grew up in, the sandhills that you've returned to as an adult. What do you hope is the future of the sandhills? And what does this kind of collaborative vision of the South look like for you? I feel similarly that um, the sandhills I returned to is not the one that I left I remember um, I heard Vic say this in an earlier episode about how they were walking downtown and saw like pride flags um, in downtown Southern Pines. And I was like, I had the same reaction. (laughs) I was shocked and pleasantly surprised and and open to the change and was open to receiving it and was like, okay, cool. I'm not alone here. Um, I think that my vision for the area is i would i would love to feel genuine i would love to feel genuinely connected with the community at large here i don't feel connected to the community at large i feel connected to a small portion of it that's doing similar work but i would love to be able to do a show and have people of all different kinds and all different backgrounds and belief systems be able to be together. I think one of the things that I realized coming back here and doing, um, I did a two-hour musical comedy special in this area, and the crowd was very mixed. Um, I had some people that that came from kind of like a religious background and some people that were Um, I think would probably identify as more progressive. And um, I didn't feel like I could be quite as loud as I might be in other places about my identity. But by the end of the show, after we had all established that what we have in common is our desire for connection, our desire for laughter, our desire for a cathartic musical experience where, you know, we can all shed a few tears 
um, I got to sing a song and it's called To Be Human. And I and I said a brief word about my identity and about the significance of the show for me. And I think that um, I'd love to be able to do that on a larger scale and feel like I can feel comfortable. I want to feel comfortable in my own heart being around people that may not agree. And I hope that we can get to a place where if someone doesn't understand everything about me, they can still come to a show and love the music and love the art and love the laughter. Um, I think that's what we'll have. That's where we'll see real change. Um, so I just want to see, I'd love to see more love on both sides. Um, I want to have more compassion and see more compassion given to those who are um, in religious circles or have been raised in a very um, hardened Southern mindset where they feel like they can't discover themselves or be artistic or be um, vulnerable with their emotion. You know, it's not just queerness. There's, there's a lot about Southern culture that I think inhibits people and oppresses people and it's not just about your sexuality. It's not just about, um, you know, your gender identity. It's about your emotions. It's about um, men feeling like they can have a full range of emotion, too, um, that they can create art that's vulnerable and beautiful and delicate. And um, there's so much work to be done. And I don't want the stumbling block to be what we don't have in common. Um, and I think that that's so possible and I can almost taste it. I always think that it's a difference between empathy and agreement. And I think that when a lot of people outside of the South look at how we're approaching activism in the South, they're thinking about it in terms of getting to a point of agreement. And realistically, I don't know that that is where we're going to get right now. But I have to believe, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe this, but I have to believe that we may never, even if we never get to agreement, we can get to a point of empathy and mutual reciprocity and respect. And there are parts of the South that I have seen this, where even if you don't agree on identity and you don't agree on beliefs, people are part, they consider themselves part of the same community. And so they show up and they respect each other. And even though, you know, some people go to church on Sundays and some people do not, or some people identify as queer and some people are really against that. Even across racial lines, you see people having this common identification through the fact that they're all community and this level of mutual care and reciprocity that happens there. It is not perfect. It is not the best model that we have for things. But it is something that comes up time and time again in the conversations that we have here that there's something special in rural places that almost forces you into a level of empathy to care for each other because generally in this country today, external structures do not support rural spaces and they do not care about them the way that the people who are in them will learn to care for each other. And I, I think I have to believe that that is a model for how we can approach the whole South and that if we can get people to a space where they see a common humanity, even if they never agree, they can learn to care for one another and have that connection of empathy and respect and mutual reciprocity. And that, that then, if we can get there, can become a pathway to some sort of agreement and some sort of collaborative vision and collaborative work. Um, and it feels really important to me that you know the South has retold its story and its myth time and time again. And almost always it has been one very specific group of people in charge of that story. And to me, it feels really important that because we have tools like the internet and we have spaces where lots of different people can come together, we are getting ourselves to a space where writing that communal vision is possible um, and crafting it. And I don't yet know what it will look like. I'm only one voice of many, but I feel, I feel really deeply that I have to believe in that. And I think I, I think I really do. I mean, that's where good folk comes from is, just the, the very simple statement of, I, I do believe that people are good and I believe especially that folk are good and that we can maybe be some sort of model for how we go forward from here. That is so beautiful. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm just looking at the time and I'm like, oh my gosh, as always, there goes our hour and it's up so quick, but- It flies by. It flies by, right? 
this is Vix described this podcast <laughs> to people before is it's like you're listening to your cool friends in a coffee shop. But I think that gives me way too much credit because I'm really so deeply uncool. But I love that because we have so many cool guests. And I feel like I'm just getting to like jut into cool conversations in the coffee shop. <laughs> All that is to say, <laughs> this is a good segue to our final question, which you've listened to the podcast, so you know. Um, but we let people take it any way they want. And we always end this way. And that question is, what do you believe in? I believe in people. I was thinking about what I wanted to say um, before this podcast. Uh, and I, you know, like many people have said, there's there are many right answers to this question. But I think my most relevant answer is that I really do believe in people. Um, people make mistakes. We're very imperfect. Um but I just believe in our ability to adapt and uh, the power of love and the power that we all have within us and also our collective power. And um, part of what I love about the idea of um, the advocacy that uh, Good Folk does and so many others in the South are doing is, um, you know, we're trying to spread a message like if you imagine that we're all like a colony or a hive and we're trying to get a message to everyone and we're like, hey, whoa, 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 guys, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it's cool to be whoever you are. <laughs> it's cool to be vulnerable. It's it's cool to love others and accept them for who they are. Um, that's such a worthy thing. And it's I I think it's worth it to not give up on trying to spread that message throughout the hive, um, if you will, because we're all so connected. We're all having a very human experience at the end of the day um, with different flavors and colors and different combinations and every palette, but we're eating the same food. We need the same things. And I think that um, in many ways we have the same heart. So I do believe in people. I believe in good folk. You just summarized that better than I ever could. You know, we'll put you as the copy on our website. <laughs> hey, listen, I was I was going to say earlier when you were like, oh, I feel like this podcast is listening to your cool friends and you didn't want to you didn't want to take that. You didn't want to be cool. I will take that because I work really hard at being cool. It's like most of what I do. It's how I spend my time is trying to be as cool as possible. I feel like you should also just accept <laughs> the fact that you're pretty cool. I think you'd be good. You know, acknowledge your own coolness. It'll be a good reminder in my identity formation that, you know, before I'm anything else, I'm cool. And I'm cool, especially because you say so. Right. So, <laughs> I think you're very cool. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to get to be in community and conversation with you. For anyone who wants to stay up to date on your work and find out everything that's going on, because I'm sure there are so many incredible things down the line for you, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on any listening platform at Anelle Stahl. Um, I also do stream on Twitch uh, three to four nights a week and all are welcome in that show. And you can come into the chat room and say whatever and talk to me and listen to music and listen to me make jokes and do some slapstick humor. And um, that's just twitch.tv forward slash Anel. And then, of course, Anel Stahl on all of their platforms on Instagram, Facebook, X. I guess is what we're calling it these days. It's no longer Twitter. Twitter is a dead name. I shouldn't have even said it. So, yeah. <laughs> Anel, thank you so much. And thank you for your wisdom and your guidance and the work that you do. And, you know, most importantly, the reminder that we're very cool. So we are good. We are here. We're cool. And I'm so excited to see everything you do. To all our listeners, wherever you are in the world, have a good day, good night, be good, stay good. Give me something perfect, cause I'm as close as it gets. Not afraid of losing, but I'm ready to win. Ooh, ooh. Give me just enough of the space, and I'll tame the stars, make them shine bright as they.
tell you 